Thank you, Lord. You're so good, Lord. God is so good. Um, we need Him. We need Him in every area of our life. And I think the human ignorance is to say that we don't, that we can figure this thing out. And what do we do when we experience seasons of our life of extreme loss, and pain, hurt? What we do then is really what we're really made of. We would like to believe we are who we are when things are going well. And that when we go through a season of our life that is a dark season, we would like to think that that is an aberration. But I want to tell you, you find out who you really are when you're walking through the dark season of your life. And that's when you find out who you are when life begins to hurt. Now, through Ms. Cheryl, I was able to, to meet Someone that's become a friend of mine, his name is Dr. William Maxwell. He's a PhD from Harvard, and he gave me his book the other day that he wrote called Super Parenting. I guess he thought I needed some parenting <laughs> advice. But no, he, and he said, I want you and your wife to read it. It's all based on study and his travels of the world where he's taught at different universities. And uh, he's, we're supposed to read a chapter and then discuss it. And then if we agree, go to the next chapter. And so that's kind of how this super parenting book works. So, so we haven't got past the foreword, but uh, we are, <laughs> the preface is, preface was great. Um, no, but he's such an astute man. He's, he, just, he just opens up so many uh, neat things. But, but he said that around six months, if you notice what a dad will do at the, around six months is he will grab a child and throw him up in the air. But while the mother's not looking, right? <laughs> that he'll grab the child and, and throw the child up in the air to catch it. And he said, what's going on there, Reverend Stevenson, is this. That the dad, without knowing it, is teaching his child trust. That the mother would run over and say, whoa, 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 cut that out. You're going to drop. And the dad's like... <laughs> right? I've seen it. So Dr. Maxwell said he's teaching the child to trust the universe. And I would take it a step farther and I would say he's teaching the child to trust God the Father. Because there are seasons in your life where it's going to feel like you've been thrown up in the air. There's seasons in your life where it's going to feel like you've just been tossed up and you're praying that God's going to catch you. And it's in these seasons where we're learning to trust the Lord when life hurts. When we don't understand what's going on. That's why there's always two different advices that happen when a child hurts themselves. The mother will run over and begin to address the hurt of the child. But do you know what the dad says? Walk it off. Walk it off. 
See, there's something about the Father when we're in painful times is that we've got to learn to walk it off. There's going to be times in your life where you're going to have to get up hurt and you're going to have to walk this thing out. You're not going to be able to hide and isolate yourself and sneak away and try to do your little thing in the quiet place, in the secret place. God is trying to tell you you're going to have to walk it out. And as embarrassing as it's going to be to have to face all the stuff and to face your failure and to face the hurt and to face this and to face that, you've got to get up when you're hurt and you've got to get back at your post and you've got to begin to walk the hurt off. That's what we got to do. That's what we got to do. So we walk it off. I think it's funny as when my child falls, it depends on who she makes eye contact with first, but how she reacts. If she falls and locks eyes with mom, mom's like, oh, and then she's, eh. If she falls and locks eyes with me, I'm like, she's like, <clears throat> See, how we're found when we're going through hurt will determine our response. And some people have just been babied way too much. And they believe their own press just way too much about themselves. And God's saying, you need a dad voice right now. And that dad voice says, you got to walk it off. You got to walk it off. You got to get back in that place that God has for you because nobody else can fulfill that void that God has for you to fulfill but you yourself. So it's not, you don't live in unto yourself. It's not like, oh, I'm going to isolate and I'll be the only person that I hurt. No, wrong. Because there's other people connected to you that if you isolate, the people that you're connected to are going to suffer if you don't get in the game. Oh, man, I'm about to tell a story on myself. This ain't even in my notes. All right, so I like to play basketball in school. And uh, my parents would always come. My dad would work out of state a lot, so he wasn't able to make all the games, but he would make several, but my mom was always there. And uh, so this time was a specific game, basketball game, where the whole family comes out, right? So even grandma, extended family, everybody's there watching my game. So you know when family shows up, you want to show out. Come on now. I'm just telling you. I wanted to do good. Right? So um, everything was, uh, you know, going in the game and everything, but there's a thing that happens at halftime in basketball. At halftime, you switch ends of the court. And what was your goal Becomes the other team's goal, and what was their goal becomes your goal. So somebody gets fouled, they're shooting free throws right at the end of half. So court switched. I visualized in my mind blocking this person out, getting the rebound, and before my feet could touch the ground, putting it back in. Visualized it. Eric, you might have been a couple years under me, but you might have been there. Cutter. Ugh. Embarrassing. So I blocked this guy out, and just how I visualized it in my mind when the guy was shooting free throws and the ball went in the air, it happened that way. I blocked the guy out, I got the rebound, and I shot the basketball and made the shot. And I turned around and went like this. And when I did like that, the opposite team went like this. 
and I looked and I go, I made it in the wrong basket. Oh, no, no. And so I went up to the coach and I called a timeout. I don't even think he told me to call a timeout, but I called a timeout. And I said, coach, take me out of this game right now because I didn't want to bear the embarrassment of failure. And my coach grabbed me by Coach Keener. He's the head football coach at Glen Rossi. Now, he grabbed my, me by the shirt, and he said, Son, we're better with you in there. Stay in the game. And I needed that voice right then because of all the shame and the embarrassment, mistakes. I needed someone to say, Get back in there. We're better with you than without you. Yeah. Yeah. So what do we do when we're walking through when life hurts sometimes and we're going through a season of life where it feels like decline? Disappointment sets in when we go in a season of decline and when disappointment comes in, sorrow begins to fill our heart. And uh, you know this, in a world with people that are imperfect Um, we're going to experience pain, disappointment, letdowns, and the like. And this happens in uh, David's life, King David's life. And I'm so glad that the Bible is so candid about its characters because we can find out that they're not superheroes. They're people like us who are trying to figure this thing out and are walking with God. And so David's life... Uh, for the most part, is a major victory. David won every battle. He defeated every enemy. He defeated a lion. He defeated uh, a bear. He defeated a giant. He defeated other armies that were mighty and powerful. He defeated a jealous king. He defeated anything that opposed David. David seemed to get the win, but the only battle that he lost was on a balcony when he was bored. And what I've found in my own life and what you'll find in your ears as well is that the times when you're most vulnerable be when you're the most tired and hurt or you're the most victorious and comfortable. So David saw Bathsheba and took her unto himself. And this is the man after God's own heart. So if he's not exempt... Come on now. Come on. That he was looking at something that he thought he lacked when in actuality he had had everything that he could ever want. But when we're in a place of comfort or in a place of hurt, we begin to think that the solution is something else other than what we already have. And we don't remain content in that season and we begin to covet and say, if I had what that person had, I would be happy. If, if that, and, and when this thing begins to play out, a spirit of jealousy begins to come in and a root of bitterness begins to set in. And we begin to do things that we would never, ever, ever think of doing because of the process of boredom or a process of, of hurt. Pain. So naturally, David, God is displeased with this affair that takes place. And then 
God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And when God sends the prophet Nathan to David, he tells him the story of a man who had tons and tons of sheep. And as he had tons and tons of sheep, he took this poor man's little lamb, the only lamb he had, and he took it from him and wouldn't give it back and wouldn't give him even price for it. And David, in all his anger, and, and, and he rises up and he tells Nathan the prophet, who is this man? He should be killed. And Nathan puts his finger in his chest and says, you're the man, David. You did it. And at that moment, David is cut to the heart. He says, oh God, I failed you. Maids. And it's in that moment that the ugliness of sin begins to touch King David's heart and he begins to repent. It's the child created in the affair. And the child passes. But God does what God always does is He comes in and redeems ugly situations. <laughs> And he gives him another son from Bathsheba named Solomon, which means peace. David is cut to his heart, but this seems to have been a turning point in David's life. That everything up to that point was increased, but as David entered into that next season of his life, he began to face a dark season of loss. After his personal and affairs and his family, there's just this kind of sequence of tragedies that begin to take place. First of those tragedies is the rape of David's daughter, Tamar, by her half-brother, Amon. And when Absalom, David's son, hears about what Amnon, his brother, has done to his sister. He appeals to the king, but the king seems unconcerned and doesn't want to get involved, and so the sister gets put away for something that's not her fault. So Absalom begins to rise up in anger, and you know there's sometimes that we can rise up in anger even in a just way, even be just in our right to be angry, but if we let it seep in and don't understand that vengeance is the Lord's, uh, bitterness and anger can begin to rise up in us and then that becomes our God because we no longer see God as in charge and, and orchestrating the affairs of our lives. But we begin to think, God, the king isn't doing a good enough job. I've got to get involved on this thing. This happens to Absalom. So Absalom has a party with a special guest. Amnon as a especially invited and he has Amnon killed and when he has Amnon killed he flees into his mother's homeland in Geshur and isolates himself hiding from the king hiding from his father 
Now Absalom returned to Jerusalem finally, but David wouldn't meet him. He wouldn't meet the king. And because of his pride, he refused to make peace with his son. And the day came when Joab finally interceded and the father and son finally became reunited. But Absalom's joy at the reconciliation was only feigned because for five long years he had brooded over the father's rejection. And so even though he was in the palace again, he was against the king. And Absalom began to put himself in the way of the people in order to incur favor with the people. So as David become too busy to put out every small fire that was available, Absalom began to put himself in the city gates, the Bible tells us. The city gates in this time period would have been the place to where business would have taken place, where the men folk would get together. It would be like a barber shop, but political, where they actually had power, not just complained. So Absalom would interject himself and said, well, if I was king and I heard your calls, I would do something about it. If I was in charge, I would have your back. I'd do what the king is unwilling to do. And so he does this for five long years and curries all the favor of the people of Israel. And before David can know what's going on, he looks, and suddenly there's a coup. There's an overthrow. And David now, who's the king who built Jerusalem, who was God's man, who everything was, he had some kind of credit for of partnering with God and making happen. He's now fleeing his own castle, fleeing his own city that was actually called the city of David. You think if anybody's going to flee the city of David, it wouldn't be David. What city are you fleeing? Uh, the city of my name. Uh. And Absalom overthrows the king and he makes a spectacle and he gets tents and he sets them up. And he begins to take David's concubines and begins to sleep with them publicly to declare there's a new line of rulership that's come to town. And as evil as this is, and we read it and we kind of grieve with David here a little bit, and as, and as bad as it is, and, as, and it's, just, it's just nasty, it's just kind of hard to have any love for Absalom, right? It's just, it's just you just kind of like, he's going to get what he deserves, right? But if we ever looked at it through the shoes or through the eyes of David, because this is David's son, See, sometimes it hurts to be right. There's sometimes there's no pleasure in being right. And so as tough as the situation is, this is still David's son whom he's running for. And what we'll find is in our life is that sometimes the greatest pain comes from 
our family or from our siblings from our children so the king is not just sitting around stewing mad that he got overthrown the king is weeping he's walking away sorrowful that this has happened through a series of events there then becomes to be a fierce battle between the troops that David has rallied as he crossed the Jordan and went up into the Mount of Olives and began to set up camp. Picture of Christ going to the Mount of Olives with the Garden of Gethsemane. But a fierce battle ensued in the forest of Ephraim near the Jordan. And David wins the battle. Joab and his men pursue Absalom. And Absalom gets caught in a tree. And as Absalom is caught in a tree, they run him through with spears. It's tragic. They come back to David. David, we've won. But how many of you know sometimes you can win and it feels like you lost? So even though David had won, he felt like he lost. I want to read to you that scenario in 2 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people still in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So David is coming back into, back into his kingdom, back into his palace, back into his rightful place, but he's not coming as if he won. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he's coming in more shameful than when he fled. There's something about the king's heart that does not delight in the punishment of the wicked and those who refuse to do what God's told them to do. He's got no delight in it. Then here comes Joab, verse 5. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Well, that kind of heart sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of sounds like King Jesus. 
For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore, arise. Go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. King David's heart was broken. And there's a part of him, I think, that would have rather have been wrong and went through the uh, punishment himself than had to allow to see his son go through that punishment. See, he knew he was God's man and he knew that this coup was completely wrong. It was fraudulent. It was phony. There wasn't any part about this that David thought that this was right. But sometimes it hurts so much to be right that we don't want to be right. And this is where King David was. This is where King David was. Hurting. Running for his life. And then made more sad by winning the war. But that's where this man Joab comes in. And as David needed, a, needed a Nathan to put his finger in his chest and say, you're wrong, he also needed a Joab to say, get back on your throne. What are you doing? What are you doing still mourning over something that happened so many years ago? You're still the king and that's still your throne and nobody can sit in that seat but you, David. So David, I need you to quit crying right now. I need you to get over it right now. I need you to do what the people need you to do and to get in your seat and quit being shameful and being sad and being this and being that. God's got a place for you if you'll sit in it and if you'll get back into that place and quit reliving all the hurt and all the pain and everything else and just wash your face, get over it, wipe those tears and get into the place where God has for you. And quit sabotaging yourself because you're crying and wimping around, letting people speak into your life that got no business speaking into your life. Running from the ones that are telling you the truth and then bringing the ones to you that won't tell you nothing. But that'll pat you on the back. You need a Joab, man. Joab wasn't a righteous man. You never read one time where Joab is uh, in the temple of God worshiping. He's never doing anything. Matter of fact, he's always disobeying David and killing people that David says don't kill. But by God, sometimes we need that guy to come into our life and say, get on that throne right now. Get back into the place that I've got for you. You gotta get there. You gotta get there. Because it's your place. It's your place. You've got to man your post and sit in your seat. 
He goes to the same gate to where Absalom had gotten all the favor. He has to go into the same place that was the place of shame where he got overthrown and then has to sit and face all them to say, no, I'm still the king of this place. This was hard for David. But Joab's advice was right in the moment. And so you have to take your place. You have to take your place. Psalm 63 is a recording of David in the wilderness when he's running for, him, running for his life. But as he's running for his life, the Bible tells us that uh, he's a king during this time. So it doesn't make sense to make this when he's fleeing from King Saul because he's not king yet. There's textual evidence to say that he's king here when he writes this song. So this would be what he writes about when he's running uh, from Absalom most likely. This is what it says, Psalm 63. This is the worship song that David writes. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Do you see what David is doing here? He's remembering. He's got to shake himself sometimes and, and, and tell himself, I remember what I saw in the sanctuary. I remember what I experienced in the presence of God. I remember that time God touched me. And so I've got to shake myself out of this season of lack and out of this season of decline. And I've got to remember who God is in my life and not let my present define my future future so I will bless you as long as I live verse 4 in your name I will lift up my hands my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate upon you in the watches of the night for you have been my help and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy my soul clings to you your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. Come on. Come on. All who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouth of liars will be stopped. See, David begins this psalm saying that, oh God, you are my God. See, he's remembering his relationship with God first and foremost. That every time David had something bad happen to him, he seems to write a song based on his relationship with the God that offers praise unto God and begins to put his uh, decrees before the Lord. So what is that saying is, is that when we're going through a season of hurt and when we're going through a season of lack and when we're going through something and nothing makes sense, we feel like that baby being tossed in the air saying, God, I hope you're going to catch me. When we're in these seasons, we have to turn that season back into a place that puts our hearts and presents our hearts unto the Lord. The reason why you're going through this season is so that in a moment of vulnerability, you might go unto the Lord and present your heart unto Him. 
I love inner healing and I love all this stuff that the church is, is doing. But here's the reality. If you get your inner healing and you don't present your heart and your life unto the Lord, it was all for nothing. I love sobriety. I'm glad people are getting sober. But if the sobriety doesn't lead you to present your heart unto the Lord, then it doesn't count for anything. You've got to say, oh God, you are my God. And I'm going to preach this thing until everybody in this room gets it. You're taking, think, you're taking medicine for depression, that's fine. But let it make you healthy so that you can offer your heart to the Lord. Come on. That everything you are experiencing is to bring you to the place where you're healthy enough and wise enough to offer your life unto God. And when it's not, this is what happens. We mope around and never fill our seat that God's called us to fill in our life. You need to go talk to somebody about your problems, go talk to them. But let it lead you to the place where you're presenting your heart and life before God. Whew. You got your money's worth that last five minutes there. I don't know, you might not. Let me see the offering afterwards and we'll make sure. We'll see if you did or not. <laughs> <laughs> See, David understands that he's in a covenant relationship. And when you're in a covenant relationship, you, nothing can break it. No man can put asunder what God is putting together. So no matter what David's going through, he's always, Oh God, you are my God. See, this was the promise that was made to Abraham. You will be my people and I will be your God. He's recounting the covenant made with Abraham that has flowed now down to King David. And he's telling God who he is in his life. Oh God, you're my God. <laughs> and I'm yours. And that's the simplicity of this thing. It's about God being yours and you being God's in relationship. Coming to a close, Justin, if you want to come up. Luke chapter 22 we find the disciples entering a season. Luke 22, verse 39. Jesus is about to be arrested. In the dark day of human history where men collude to murder God. Luke 22, verse 39. And He came out and went as was His custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you might not enter into temptation. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So here's Jesus in the worst moment of agony and suffering in all of his humanity and all of his deity coming together to, to, to create this crazy complex moment where the sin of the world is about to be placed upon the Lamb of God. He says, not my will, but your will be done. 
Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Now get this, verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus is teaching us warfare here. He's saying, I don't get everything that's going on, and I know that I'm in your hands, though, Lord. So not my will, your will be done. An angel shows up, and then he starts praying more fervently, so fervently that sweat as his drops of blood begin to fall off Jesus' head. But now watch what happens. Verse 45, And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. So here's Jesus' heart, and here's the disciples' heart. That even though they're following, their hearts are so disconnected from the King that they're sleeping while He's agonizing in warfare and prayer. Now here's what gets me about this. This is, I get being tired, right? And if you fall asleep, like some of you I see kind of nodding off, you know, hit your buddy. I'm almost coming to a close here. Pretend you're at a football game or something and act interested or whatever. I get sleeping because when you sleep, you're sleepy. You're tired. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that they're sleeping because they're sorrowful. They're not sleeping because they're bored or disinterested or, ah, Jesus is acting crazy again. Let's go get some shut-eye and we'll just hit it afresh in the morning. They're sleeping on the plan and purpose of God because there's so much sorrow in their heart. They don't know what else to do but to lay there and be asleep. I'm thinking that they need a Jerusalem Starbucks. But that's not the case. They're sleeping because they're sorrowful. When sorrow is left unattended, it'll fill up your heart. And when that disappointment isn't dealt with, you'll sleep on the plan and destiny that God has for you. That's why when you see somebody in deep depression, what do they do? Can't get out of bed. So the disciples are sleeping because they're sorrowful. That depression has set in. And even in the most crisis and critical hour, they can't get enough to even stir up a prayer when Jesus is telling them to pray. Bound up by the disappointments of life. Why are they sorrowful? John chapter 16, verse 5, Jesus told him, But now I'm going to Him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? See, Jesus says it's going to be more profitable for me to leave 
in this season of your life so that I can send a greater power that you can begin to operate into and you can begin to step into the destiny that God has for you. It's good for me to go. And there's sometimes when Jesus speaks to us and and our lives begin to shape out that it don't make sense. And we're like, man, I guess God doesn't love me. I guess He's leaving me. I guess He's going to leave me here unattended. And then sorrow begins to inform our heart and disappointment begins to uh, begins to infirm, affirm our heart and then we begin to get sad but then Jesus addresses this sorrow in chapter 16 of John verse 16 and he says this a little while and you will see me no longer and again a little while you'll see me so some of his disciples said to one another what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me and a little while and you will see me and because I'm not and because I'm going to the father verse 18 so they were saying what does it mean by a little while we do not know what he's talking about do you see how they're having this dialogue about Jesus what's going on with our life we've left everything to follow you what is happening verse 19 and Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him so he said to them is this what you are asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you'll not see me and again a little while and you will see me said truly truly I say to you you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will, be, uh, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. I submit to you, if something has took your joy, it wasn't the joy that Jesus gives. It was a man-made, manufactured, emotional something that you had deemed to be the joy of the Lord, but it was not. Because the joy that God gives, no man can take away. The world can't take away. Circumstances can't take it away. Happiness is based on happenings. But the joy of the Lord is unmovable. It's an anchor to our soul that anchors us to Him. Where we don't hit the ejector seat every time we hit some conflict. We face up to it, not because we're so strong. But God promised that if we show up, the giants are going to fall. If we enter the land, it doesn't matter how much experience we have. There's people with all kinds of experience. What we need is some faith-filled people, not faithful people, faith-filled people that will accept the promises of God and will enter into the plans that God has for them. My friend Cole was telling me this week the Hebrew word for compassion means a twisting of the bowels. And some of what we call compassion is not a twisting of the bowels. <laughs> so maybe you get a little teary-eyed. Or... But if you've ever had a bowel twisting, you're going to go do something about it. And if this season of your life feels like a twisting, feels uncomfortable, feels like loss, God said, I'm going to turn that sorrow into joy. I'm going to turn the sorrow into joy. Quit trying to interpret why God isn't there in your life and begin to step into the place of trust that isn't asking God, why are you doing this? But that will raise his hands with David and say, oh God, you are 
my God, in a dry and weary place, I thirst for you. This is what God is calling us into. This is what He's drawing us into. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. But sometimes it just feels like it'd be better if I wasn't here. And that's Satan's greatest plan. To get you facing all the trials of your life and to get you to think that it'd be better if you weren't here. Yeah, it's a lie. It's a lie. Would you bow your heads with me? God, I don't know what to do.